I've always loved to read. Uh, I read biographies, novels, uh, short story collections, news, just about anything. And uh, if you probably discovered, and I, I feel like I have, that writers normally produce their best work when they're writing from their own experience. John Grisham, who's written many international bestsellers, uh, writes from his experience as a lawyer. Pat Conroy, uh, another famous novelist whose novels have been produced into many Hollywood films, uh, writes from his experience growing up in the southern U.S. John Le Carre, uh, he's one of the more famous spy novelists in the world. He writes from his experience in the British uh, Secret Service. One of the most interesting and vivid biblical writers is the Apostle John, uh, who wrote from his intimate, personal experience of Jesus. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, uh, his important account of the teaching of Jesus, as well as four other uh, short books in the New Testament. Uh, when John was about a young man of 19... Uh, he traveled to southern Israel to hear one of the most famous uh, teachers in Israel at the time. It appeared to be a new prophet on the scene in Israel known as John the Baptizer. And in, when he was down there, uh, he encountered Jesus of Nazareth uh, for the first time. And actually, Jesus invited John to spend the day with him. And so they began to get acquainted. Several weeks later, when John had returned to his home in northern Israel up in Galilee, uh, he was no doubt surprised uh, when Jesus found him one day and invited him to begin traveling uh, with him uh, full time. He made the decision to do that, and the rest of his life was very very different as a result of that decision. John appears to have been the youngest of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he was a very passionate young man who became intensely loyal uh, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in fact, affectionately nicknamed John and his brother James the Sons of Thunder uh, because of their youthful zeal and passion at different times. Uh, young John became the person with whom Jesus appeared to have the closest emotional uh, connection. Uh, several times he invited uh, John into some very unusual experiences uh, and he didn't, where he didn't invite the, any of the, or very many of the larger group. And during their uh, last meal together, uh, John actually, young John actually placed his head, uh, the scriptures tell us, on Jesus' chest, which is a very intimate thing for a young man to do to another man. And then moments before Jesus died uh, from his crucifixion, Jesus looked down at young John and committed the care of his mother to him, which reveals the depth of Jesus' uh, relationship with him 
and his belief in him. Over his lifespan, uh, John matured from um, an ambitious and at times immature young man to be a man of great wisdom and humility. Uh, He never refers to himself in his gospel, his extended description of the life and teaching of Jesus, but whenever he refers to himself, he describes himself simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus had communicated a type of love for him that was absolutely life-changing and uh, life-transforming. And some 50 years later, toward the end of his life, uh, he made the decision to write an account of his experiences with this extraordinary person. He tells us about his first encounter with Jesus, uh, the teaching he heard, and uh, what he witnessed after Jesus miraculously returned to life from death in his resurrection. Uh, This morning we're beginning a six-week study called uh, No One Like Him, Uh, six extraordinary facts about Jesus that everyone uh, needs to know. And we will draw primarily from John's teaching about Jesus contained in his Gospels. And some of the most astonishing statements that John makes about Jesus are actually in the, in the first few sentences of his Gospel. He wants to say to his readers at the very beginning that the person that he is about to describe is no ordinary human being. And so he begins by saying in verse 1 of chapter 1, In the beginning was the word, and he uses the Greek word logos here. He says the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He goes on in verse 3 to say all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Life, zoe, itself, was in him. And this zoe gives light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not extinguish it. Now, there's some profound Profound depth in these few verses, certainly more than we can explore in just this remaining few minutes. But I'd like to identify seven of John's observations about Jesus in these verses. First, when he says, in the beginning was the word, uh, he introduces us to the Jesus he encountered um, by describing him as the Logos. Now, for 700 years, the Hebrew prophets had been promising that an utterly unique global leader was going to emerge from their own nation, uh, the nation of Israel. And Jesus, now at the beginning of his account, is identifying Jesus as that leader. 
He has come. He has shown up. He says, we have witnessed this person. He is the person who was promised. And he identifies Jesus as the word, the logos. Of course, we use language and words to share information. It's the great astonishing difference between us, among others, uh, one of the differences between us and the animal kingdom is our capacity for language. Uh, We have the ability to transmit information from generation to generation, and that has resulted in an explosion of of civilization, the progress of civilization over the last 10,000 plus uh, years. But through words... Uh, We can communicate information. We can also reveal our minds and hearts to each other. We can lay open our emotions, the deepest parts of ourself, if we choose to, to another person through the use of language, of words. And so words, our words can be very powerful. Uh, They can reveal so much about us. And John is saying here that this promised leader has come, he has arrived, and he is language. He is a revelation of the mind and the heart and the emotions, the nature of God Almighty himself. Amazing uh, proclamation of this person that he encountered and traveled intimately with for these three some years. Secondly, he says this leader who has come is and was much, much more than was previously anticipated by the prophets. He says, in the beginning, this leader was not only with God, he was God. Now, the difference between this statement and so many false messiahs that we've heard about through history is the astonishing character and the personality and the nature of teaching of Jesus that has had an impact on millions and hundreds of millions and some billion people on the earth today through hundreds of years through two millennia. So when a person emerges like Jesus of Nazareth and there is this profound witness and testimony of the uniqueness of this person who impacts human history, and the way that he has. This is something that demands our attention, our careful focus and attention. And so Jesus, uh, John is saying here, he's not only w- he was not only with God, he was God. He was, in fact, divine. And then he says, third, uh, that the Logos, being divine, was the agent of creation. He just keeps stepping it up. And his description of Jesus. So he says that this individual, this leader who arrived, who was more than was ever anticipated, this Messiah, is the agent of all creation from this incomprehensibly grand universe that we know of around us with its billions of galaxies to the microscopic and invisible realities that the uh, physicists tell us about, that the both physical and spiritual realities. He is the origin, the crea- agent of that creation. And then fourth, he says in verse 4, he says that 
life, Zoe itself, was in him. Now, in other uses of this word in Greek literature, Zoe is a word to describe. It's not just normal life like you and I share this morning. It is described as the absolute fullness of life that belongs only to God. And he is saying here that that life, the very life of God himself, the unique, divine, immortal life of God was in this person. And so he says it was there and he burst on the human scene and human history has never been the same. It's fascinating to read the book of the Acts. Uh, because the book of the Acts traces the events immediately after the resurrection of Christ, and then it traces this electrifying effect that he had had on this group of men and women in Israel so that the movement that he launched began expanding throughout Israel and Samaria and then throughout the near Middle East and then throughout the Roman Empire, And then as we study the history of Christianity, we see it's a fascinating study that just as Jesus promised, he says, you know, that this word will go out to the uttermost parts of the earth, this truth about this individual. And so in church history, we can see that uh, quite clearly. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Iris and I had this amazing privilege and opportunity a few weeks ago to go to Thailand and teach a group of uh, about 70 team leaders, uh, uh, principally young people who are uh, following Christ's call to who have followed that call and have moved to Asia and living in some of the most difficult and remote places you can imagine in Mongolia and er different areas of China and Japan. And uh, God's work continues people continue to be captured by this individual. The work of the Spirit of God continues to work within people and inspire and stimulate them to go to these sometimes very difficult places and make the difficult effort to try to communicate this truth, this light, this life in areas where it is not previously uh, penetrated. Fifth observation that John makes it, he says this light shines, present tense, in the darkness. But then he changes verb tenses. He says the darkness did not, past tense, extinguish it. So what he means is this this light shines in the darkness. It it is an active force right now. It can be and is an active force in our life if we know Christ. It's a the, the kingdom of God is alive and well on earth this morning and will continue to be and it will progress as God intends. His uh Jesus says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against this light that continues to expand across uh, the earth and into different people's hearts and minds. It's an active force right now. But then he makes this interesting shift of verb tense, and he says the darkness did not extinguish it. 
Now, if we read the accounts in the life of Jesus, we see these amazing stories of these demonic powers and forces emerging in the circumstances around him. It's, 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 just, it's really amazing to see how often and regular that occurs in the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's because, you know, so often we, we cannot see these dark, invisible, cosmic forces of evil that the New Testament talks about. But when the light, the Zoe of God, came upon the scene, that cosmic battle became very, very evident and clear in a way that it normally does not. So the darkness did not extinguish it. What was intended to be accomplished in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus was in fact accomplished and continues to be today. Now then in John, skipping on down to verse 4, he adds two more important statements about Jesus. Verse 14, he says, The Word became human and lived here on earth among us. That is astonishing information. It's so easy, of course, I, 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 it's so easy for me to take this for granted. We gather on a weekly basis and we try to stimulate each other to be reminded of this remarkable and amazing fact. And it's so important that we do that because this being true is simply the most important information that you and I can encounter in this lifetime. It says that the Word became human. The Almighty, the divine, came and lived among us here on earth among us. And John says, seventh, he says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And he uses this word, Greek word, monogenes. He's saying, he, he, he actually borrows the term from a statement that Jesus makes about himself in John chapter 3 and verse 16, in which Jesus refers to himself in the third person. And he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only monogenes, his only begotten son. Now, this word, this Greek word, it means unique the only one of its kind. And it's used in the Bible to describe Jesus and Jesus only. Now, the verb beget is, of course, very rarely used in English uh, today. And essentially, it just means to reproduce ourselves. Now, there's a very important difference between the verbs, the words beget and create. To create is to make. Uh, you and I, we can potentially, we can create music. Uh, we can create literature. We can create buildings, machines of different kinds. But to beget is something entirely different. It is to produce another person through parenting who is the same essence as ourselves. So in the mysteries of John's words here, he is saying that in the infinite capacities of God, there 
is an only begotten son. And the Bible uses these terms, father, son, and spirit, to describe this remarkable personality of the Almighty. Now, this isn't, of course, an easy concept for us to understand. Uh, The early Christian community uh, struggled to understand it. And there was a lot of controversy in the first couple of centuries because one of the big questions for them and, of course, for us is how can we understand the Bible's teaching, the disciples' teaching about Jesus' divine identity and retain belief in the monotheism of the Old Testament, that there is one God. Well, the early generation of Christ followers, um, they recognized John's witness and his testimony. And so very bright people, uh, men and women over a long period, as they prayerfully reflected on the literature of the Bible and the teaching of the New Testament, they developed the literature of Christian theology. Now, the goal of theological studies is to very carefully and very meticulously study all what the Bible, all that the Bible teaches on a particular specific subject and then synthesize those ideas and, and, and define the most accurate ideas about God and about his program that we possibly can. So in the history of the Christian church, the scholars, uh, they have written great volumes of theology. And we know uh, people like Augustine way back 1,700 years ago and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin. And, of course, they're, they're modern contemporaries today on the scene who write systematic theologies. But theology is like a map uh, if we want to just stand on the seashore, we can see something of the beauty and the greatness of the ocean and its ecosystems. But if we're actually going to travel across the ocean and arrive at a particular destination, we need a map. So theology, theological studies, is like a map that assimilates the prayerful reasonings of people over the history of the uh, church so that we can get the clearest uh, ideas. And so, as we've said, uh, I think last year we talked about this uh, briefly one morning, but about 300 years after uh, Jesus was on earth, uh, the principal leaders of the Christian faith at that time came together to define, because there was continued controversy, how do we make sense of Jesus' divine identity as explained in the New Testament with the one God of the Old Testament. And so they defined the Nicene Creed, which is a very precise statement of the historically orthodox teaching of the church about the nature of Jesus as well as God. And so we read the Nicene Creed. We have a copy of it. Um, we, uh, it says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. 
And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So what the tradition and the the accepted teachings of orthodoxy in the Christian uh, church, what has emerged over time is a description of God in his great magnificence and complexity, that God is one essence, three persons in a relationship. So God is a relationship according to the teaching of Scripture. And the words the Bible uses to help us understand that relationship is Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, the great C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this. Lewis's great skill and gifting was to be able to take very sometimes complex concepts and make them clear and relevant to uh, the average person like us. And so he says in his book, Mere Christianity, about this, he says, the union between the father and son is such a living thing that the union is itself a person. Look at it this way. When people are in a family or a club, a type of spirit emerges. The individual members develop particular ways of talking and behaving they wouldn't have if they were apart. A sort of communal personality comes into existence. It isn't a real person. It's only rather like a person. That, however, is one of the differences between God and us. What emerges from the joint life of the father and son is a real person. In fact, the third of the three persons who are God. And then very beautifully, he says in uh, the same uh, book, he says the love and energy, the relationship between the three persons of the one God is like a kind of dance. They're a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Each of us needs to, in a sense, enter into that relationship, take his or her place in it. If we want strength, peace, eternal life, We must draw near to and even into the source of them. There is no other way to experience the happiness for which we were made. Once we are united to God, it's impossible to not live forever. On the other hand, if a person is separated from God, it's inevitable that he or she will eventually wither and die, spiritually speaking. fireworks this morning don't we? in more ways than one John later in his short letter of first John in chapter 5 he makes uh, this statement he says this is what God has said eternal life is in his son whoever has the son has the life Whoever does not have his son does not have this life. 
And so the amazing, the astonishing, the life-changing news that John brings us in these verses and that he will develop over the course of the 17 chapters in the book that's, that follows this is that this person is like no one else. There is no one like him. Life is in him. And if you and I draw near to him, if as we believe in him, as we pursue and seek him, as we invite him into every corner of our being to illumine our thinking, to guide, to direct, to lead, to bless, to strengthen, to point out to us areas in which we need to confess that we are wrong, that we have sinned, that we fall short, and receive from him the forgiveness that he offers every day, freshly. As we do this, then we enter more deeply into the fellowship that Lewis talks about of the nature of God, one essence and three persons. And we want to uh, develop this idea and uh, think it through together more fully in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage that you inspired your Apostle John to write that he beheld your glory. I, I pray that although our circumstances are very different from his, I pray that you would enable us in our own ways to glimpse something of that glory. I pray that this teaching would grip us deeply. This is not, as we know, just normal information. This is something that is life-changing. Help us to embrace it, to accept it, to believe it, and to uh, change as a result of it in whatever ways that you desire. And we ask that in Jesus' name.